0: In appearance, a ship's anchor remains much the same as it did centuries ago. You can read in Acts chapter 27 about a shipwreck that Paul was involved with, and they threw out four anchors to keep them from drifting into great danger. And the anchor itself hasn't changed. Almost everything else on a ship has changed. But even a big cruise ship has a similar anchor. It's larger, but has the same function. When you think about it, human life hasn't changed much either over the centuries. Oh, outwardly it has. With the technology we have and advances, things are much different. But inwardly, human beings are exactly the same. They have the same dangers as they did years ago, the same weaknesses and sorrows and temptations. And every soul needs an anchor for the voyage of life. It was years ago that a steamship was being launched on Lake Champlain in Vermont. It was quite a big deal. Cheers went up from the crowd as the ship slid from dry dock moorings into the icy waters of the lake. It seemed to be a perfect situation. The ship looked beautiful crew was well-trained, a bunch of passengers on board very, very eager. But then something went terribly wrong. After a few minutes on their voyage, the engine stopped working. And so in the midst of that, the, uh, the captain ordered for the anchor to be thrown overboard. The wind was blowing rather strong and taking the ship toward the rocks on the shore, and it continued to drift. The captain shouted again, Down with the anchor! It is down, said the crew, and the ship continued to drift. Thankfully, after a few frantic moments, they got the engine running again and were able to get back on course. It was later discovered that the anchor chain was three feet short from reaching the bottom. Above water, things were fine. Below water, it was a tragedy. And you know, a lot of people have anchors in life that don't work. There was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Priscilla Owens who was teaching her kids. Actually, she taught public school, and she taught in the Sunday school, gave her life to it, and trying to get truths from the Bible into the hearts of the children, she decided to write hymns, poems, and she was very gifted. And one of her poems starts out like this. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift Or firm remain in response the Christian's song is we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll founded on the rock that cannot move founded firm and deep in our Savior's love and that hymn written for children is taken out of the book of Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 19 but we have this hope as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast let me encourage you to turn to hebrews chapter 6 and while you're doing that just to give you a little bit of background and where we've been in chapter 5 we noticed that the people that the author is writing to Jewish believers who had gone through much persecution, but now are considering turning back to Judaism and leaving Christ, they weren't making any progress in their faith. They were sluggish, still needed to be fed uh, a milk diet, couldn't take strong meat. And so he urges them in chapter 6 to move forward and don't fall away, and it's pretty strong language. But then when you come to verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, But dear ones, loved ones, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. You see, the book of Hebrews is not a book to make you feel bad. It's a book to make you encouraged, to give wonderful peace and assurance to the soul. He said, I'm I'm encouraged that the things that accompany salvation, this not falling away, but following Christ, will be seen in your life. For God is not unjust, verse 10, to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name. You've ministered to the saints in the past, and you even continue to do so. Verse 11, and we desire that... You show this same diligence that you will continue on with full assurance of hope even to the very end. That's that word, persevere. And I love that phrase, full assurance of hope. Hope is the thing that we all need. Hope in the Bible is a certain thing. And you can be fully assured of eternal hope. That's what he's saying. We don't want you to be sluggish, but we want you to imitate those who through faith and patience, which is endurance, inherited the promises. We want you to fully realize your hope. And that's the purpose of the writer, to encourage So this is how he does it. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers who are thinking of turning back. And so he gives an illustration of Abraham. And basically, he states that God made a promise to Abraham. So he's now going back into the Old Testament to recover this Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And we read about it in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham so many years ago, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, and this is just part of it. Sometimes a portion of a promise is used to refer to the whole promise. Verse 14, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now that's actually a reaffirmation of the covenant because this is in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, a direct quotation taken by the author. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now think about it, the people that he's writing to knew Abraham well, they loved him dearly. And they were fearful that this thing of going after Christ would jettison everything they learned and everything that God had revealed, especially like the promise to Abraham. But the author is saying, oh no, we're not getting rid of that promise. In fact, that promise that God gave, he sealed with an oath. Now this to me is astounding. So God gave the promise, and now God makes certain the promise with an oath. He swore by himself because he could swear by no one else. The word oath and swear for a long time caused me a lot of problems. Because if you look at a dictionary, the word oath is a solemn promise, often evoking a divine witness as a sign of fact, to verify. And so we go into a court of law, don't we? And we put our left hand on a Bible. We used to. Can't do that anymore. That whole issue had been highly litigated and based on the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution or known more commonly by us, separation of church and state. You, you can't force people to use a Bible, so it's not used very often. But you put your left hand on a Bible and you lift up your right hand And you would say something like this, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You've got your hand on the Bible, and you're invoking the name of God. Now, really, that kind of oath is fine. I know some Christians read about oaths in the Bible and think, I'm never going to take an oath in court. But... And we need to let our yes be yes and our no be no. uh, That's true in the scriptures, but there's nothing wrong with saying God is my witness. Because God took an oath. And this is what is so surprising. A vow for God is superfluous. And yet, that's exactly why it's exceptionally impressive that God took an oath. He could swear by no one else, no one greater than him. We swear by God or or hand of the Bible, but he has no one higher, so he swore by himself. He made an oath. Now, the thing that bothered me about oaths is that the same idea, oath and swear, can also mean a profane uh, language or profane words that often are inspired by anger. And... Growing up, I knew what it was to swear, but not in the positive biblical sense. And so when I opened up the scriptures and began to read about God's swearing, I was totally confused. Now you say, well, pastor, you, shouldn't have under- you should have understood that. Not when I was a baby Christian 14 years old. And the Bible's a lot like that. Sometimes our w- words are used in different ways. But here God is taking an oath. To make certain his promise, this is an oath he made to Abraham and dear Israel, the writer is saying, dear people of God, God is not going to forget you and he will make good on all his promises. And that's the third thing we notice, God made good on his promise. To Abraham. He made a promise, he made it certain by an oath, and he made good on his promise to Abraham. Now, Abraham did not receive all that was promised to him, but he received the promised son. So verse 15 says, After waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, what you may miss is that Abraham had to wait at least 25 years <laughs> for his son to be born. That's patience. 25 minutes for me is a test. 25 years? Can you imagine that? And we are told to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises, like faithful Abraham. No, God hasn't given up on his people. Be sure of that. And every promise God has ever made, he will perfectly fulfill in its time. There's the catch. It's not my timetable, it's his. I'm sure Abraham, well, Abraham did jump the gun, right? And took his wife's handmaid to be his wife. Sarah told him to so she could have children because she wasn't having any children. She was barren from the beginning of their relationship. And so Abraham goes along with it, and then it backfires. And everyone is upset, bickering at each other. It's because Abraham jumped the gun. But he waited patiently, and he's become the father of faith, and he is to us an example that God always makes good on his promise. Now, that's the illustration. Here's the application. Verse 16. God makes a promise to us. He's still talking about oaths here. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is said, puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it by an oath. So notice the parallelism. God made a promise to Abraham, God makes a promise to us. You say, how are we in there? Verse 17, heirs of what was promised. Now, you might say, well, that was in context to Abraham, and so it is. Acts 3.25, speaking to the Hebrew people, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God that he made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Yeah, that's the immediate focus, but don't forget Galatians 3.29 that says if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Titus chapter three, verse seven, having been justified by his grace so that we may become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now when you believe in Christ, you are connected, grafted in to all of those old promises. Some are uniquely for Israel, but those, provident, uh, those, those promises of redemption and forgiveness and hope and eternal life, all of those become ours as we are heirs of the wonderful promise. So now, this is a promise to you and me, just just as it was to the believers of that day. Not talking about Abraham anymore. it's talking about us. The ancient story proves the continuous truth that it's impossible for God to lie. And he promises us life that never ends. Same thing, God makes certain the promise. Notice the parallelism. He takes an oath here. An oath ends all debate. Disputes, useless. God's word is final. And I want you to notice the grace of God in stooping down to our level to take an oath. He wants to make the purpose of his promise very clear, he said. So I'll take an oath. And that will settle all arguments. And indeed, the scripture tells us that's exactly what he does. And so God did this. So that by two unchangeable or immutable things, this is the only time this word is found in the New Testament in this fashion, the unchangeables of God. I love that thought. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us might be greatly, greatly encouraged. What are these two unchangeable things? Number one, his trustworthy word. Number two, the sacred oath he has taken. It is the character of his word and the character of the God who gives the word. Has anyone ever tried to get you in a uh, kind of a philosophical uh, difficulty? Uh, One of those... uh, Trick questions that, uh, when answered, supposedly put you in a corner. The kind the Pharisees and the lawyers tried to ask Jesus, has anyone ever said to you, is God so great that he can do anything? Or is there anything God can't do? And if you say, yes, he can do everything, then immediately people will say, well, can he sin?" So this portion of scripture says it is impossible for God to lie. So in answer to the question, can God do anything? The answer is no, but he can do all his holy will. He can do whatever is right and, in, and consistent with who he is. He cannot lie. Take every promise in the word of God. Embrace that to your soul. The promise given to you as a believer in Christ. Believe it with all your heart, for God has taken an oath just like he did to Abraham, and he will not lie. And you put your faith and trust in him, and you will live forever. We want you to realize, the writer says, the full assurance of hope. When you get to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the apostle John says these things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have what? Eternal life. These things are written, I write to you, so that you might know. God doesn't want you guessing. God doesn't want you living in limbo. God doesn't want you to say, I hope so. If we put our faith and trust in him, he receives us. If it's an honest trust, if it's sincere faith, he accepts it. And he gives to us a hope backed up by his character and his oath. You will never be lost. Every time I do a funeral for a believer, I am amazed at the grace that God gives to those who have lost dear ones. Sometimes in the midst of great tragedy, there's hope. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians? We want to make sure that you understand the truth about God. We don't want you to be ignorant brethren so that you will grieve like those who have No hope? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you might know the hope, know the hope of his calling. And that hope is to be resident in our hearts and something we rely on every day, for God has guaranteed eternal life to those who believe. I like what it says in verse 18. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. The hope has not totally been realized. Just like the promises to Abraham when he died were not totally realized. He had a down payment and he had God's oath and promise, but there was more yet to come. And you and I have the wonderful promise of God to steal us, to steady us in this crazy world. And that promise comes from the God who cannot lie. The imagery of fleeing is found in the Old Testament. It's connected with the cities of refuge. We studied that when we went through the book of Joshua, in particular Joshua 20. There were three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west side, close enough so everyone could get to one. And the purpose of a city of refuge was if you unintentionally harmed someone or maybe even took a life, you would flee to that place to get justice. And the elders would come and a court would be established. If you didn't get to a city of refuge, Before the relative of the injured party got to you, you were in trouble. What a situation that would be. Wake up in the morning, dad's gone. Where's dad? Well, last night there was an accident. And he's on his way (laughs) to one of the cities. But the avenger of blood was pursuing you. That's why you were hurrying. The one who wanted to take your life was marking your steps. But when you flee to Jesus, there is no avenger who can ever touch you. Isn't that great? In Timothy, it says, Some men's sins are open before the judgment. Public, everyone sees them. Some sins... Follow after, like the Avenger going all the way after you to catch up with you in the day of judgment. But if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. That's our hope. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both firm and steadfast. What is really amazing in this section of Scripture is the double affirmations that the writer is using. God who cannot lie takes an oath. You have a hope that is sure and steadfast. You don't see this. It's extremely rare rare, anywhere else in the scripture. But the point of fact is a lot of people are trusting in the wrong thing to give them stability and they're shaken by any wind of trial. But our hope is in Jesus Christ, the rock that cannot be moved. Our anchor, by the way, is different than a normal ship's anchor. A normal ship will drop anchor, hopefully catch something firm on the bottom, and stabilize the ship in bad winds. But our anchor is a little bit different, and I came across something I was not aware of. It's a nautical term called kedging. And kedging apparently happens when a ship is grounded or in turbulent water, and the sailors will row out in another little ship with an anchor, and they'll throw that anchor as far as they can away from the ship in the direction that you want the main ship to go. And that anchor hopefully will catch something and then it's connected to a cable where they wench the big ship in the direction of the Kedge anchor in the direction they want to go. That's exactly what we have in Christ. An anchor who's gone before us. He's not below us, he's above us. He's before us. Did you notice that in the text, verse 18? We take hold of the hope hope set before us. And we're going to read that Jesus is the forerunner. And we've already noticed in chapter 2, he's the pioneer. And in chapter 12, a similar word is used. He's gone before us. You see... Jesus, as a forerunner, not only precedes us, he prepares for us. John 14. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving, and they are unhinged. I would like to see that scene depicted accurately. They were frantic. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you. And the place you know and the way you know. And Thomas speaks up for the whole group. Wait wait a minute, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. Probably should have, but he didn't. How do we know the way? And what did Jesus say? I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's gone to precede us, but gone to prepare for us. He's the forerunner. And he is the one who has already appeased the justice of a holy God. And he is the one who died for our sin on the cross so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him will have a hope. Sure, sure. And steadfast, it's grabbed hold of the only thing that cannot change. We live in an uncertain world, but it's always been uncertain. Always. Have you ever heard that phrase, nothing is certain but death and taxes? Who said that? Some people say Mark Twain, but before him, it was a guy by the name of Benjamin Franklin. But before him, Daniel Defoe, the author of um, Robinson Crusoe. Not in that book, but in a different one. So that's way back in in the 1700s. But before that, it it was found in a book called The Cobbler of Preston, 1716, by Christopher Bullock, in which he said, tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. So Franklin stole the quote, (laughs) as did others who passed later on. But the point is, everyone has lived in this world of uncertainty, but there's one thing sure, and that is our rock, Christ Jesus. And to be anchored to him gives you stability through everything in life. The Bible tells us that this Jesus has entered the veil for us look at verse 19 we have this hope as an anchor for the soul both firm and secure this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain what does that mean he's mixing metaphors and now he's talking about the temple the high priest could only go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement and he had to offer blood for himself first but Jesus has entered in with his own blood Not for his sin, but for ours. He's already entered in, and God has accepted him. He's gone behind the curtain. Our forerunner, Jesus Christ, went there on our behalf. And as we'll see as we get into chapter 7, he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus went in behind the veil for us, chapter 6, and he's going to suffer outside the camp for us, chapter 13. And God can be trusted. He has a dependable word. He has a dependable nature. And he has a dependable son. And this hope that Jesus has offered us is like an anchor for the soul. So why are you just... Discouraged, O my soul, why cast down within me hope in God? For I shall yet praise him. When we feel the stress of the storm, that's when we realize the worth of the anchor. And we have an anchor that holds. So hold on to hope. Hold on to Christ. And you shall make it, because he has promised. Let's pray. Lord, to go back in history and to see what you have done is so encouraging, to see your wonders and your miracles, to see that every promise you've ever made has always been fulfilled. Not one of your promises has fallen like a leaf to the ground. In time, you do what you said you would do. It is guaranteed by your oath and your character. And so, Lord, we embrace the promise that says, if we shall confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Speak to hearts even this morning, Lord, that they might trust you. And Lord, give to us this wonderful hope as an anchor of our soul. It's simply the promise of Christ. It's Christ himself. And I pray, Lord, that as we come in faith to you, our hearts might be encouraged in the midst of these difficult days. If someone needs to trust you, may they do it right now. But Lord, this is for those people of whom we are convinced of better things. Oh Lord, let our anchor, let our faith be in the anchor, Christ Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Head, heads bowed. Think of your own relationship to the Lord. What is your anchor? Save us and restore us today, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus.